And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony, and Miss Maggie is not here today, but in her place, we have a fantastic guest for you, and I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, my name's Rachel, and I am really excited to be here talking about this book. This is one of my favorite books, this trilogy. I read it in high school, and i it's one of my favorites. I don't know what else to say other than that. There's so much good stuff I can say about this trilogy. <laughs> But it's it's a great trilogy. I am um, I'm actually very excited that Rachel is here. We are just to remind everyone reading the Gemma Doyle trilogy, and today we're reading the Sweet Far Thing. And before Maggie and I started this read, this trilogy, Rachel was one of the people who I talked to about it before we had even like decided to put it. I think officially on our season two roster, and she was like, "I love this book series." So. That was something we got to bond over. (laughs) Yes. So, Rachel, I have a few questions about who you are for the listeners. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about who you are as like a reader, writer, storyteller? As a reader, I really enjoy books that are more fantasy based. Uh, They take place in worlds that are not where we live in. I like that element of escaping and kind of imagining somewhere that's really different. So I think this trilogy being one of my favorites and this book specifically being one of my favorites is kind of a no-brainer because it fits that perfectly. And I like other series that are fantasy-based too, or yeah, like more fantasy. Another one of my favorite books, just as an example, is Alice in Wonderland. That idea of being in a different world where everything makes sense and nothing makes sense and it's whimsical and different. I really like that too. And as a writer, I am a writer. I studied journalism in college for my undergrad and for grad school. So even though I didn't do a lot with creative writing, ever since I was young, I've enjoyed writing. When I was younger, I wrote a lot of poetry. That was my main endeavor with writing when I was younger. And every now and then I would write stories, just short stories, just for myself. I never really intended for anybody to read them, but kind of keeping up with that different world element. And uh, yeah, I've taken a step back from creative writing lately, just because of, you know, real world things. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it is something that I've really wanted to get back into. And I want to explore that more creative side of my mind because I feel like I have all of these ideas and I'm not writing them down but that is what I want to start doing again (laughs) (laughs) I get you it's been so hard for me to like write during the pandemic so I definitely understand yeah so just so everyone knows Rachel and I were co-workers and 
we were talking about this book and I asked her to come on, but she also studied journalism like me. And I think that's really cool. I think it's really cool that you did poetry. My co-host Maggie is really into poetry, both writing and reading. This theme of escapism through fantasy, I think is is interesting. And one that I think also I really identify with. I think Maggie, if she were here, would also really identify mm-hmm. with. In terms of like this series, did you find when you first read it as a teenager, I'm assuming, did you find that same element of escapism here? I did. The first time I read this book, I actually, I was in college. So I was probably 19, maybe 20 at the oldest. Um, I read the first two books in high school. I bought them both from Borders, I believe, if anybody remembers that bookstore still. <laughs> that is where <weird>. I <laughs> might be showing my age a little bit that's okay but yeah I bought the first two books and then I actually got the third book from the public library when I was in college and I recently bought it a few years ago and the first time I read it I definitely had that sense of escapism like I did with the first two books and two things I really like about where this book takes place it's it's a historical book takes place in Victorian era England which is one of my favorite eras from history uh, to learn about and to read about. So that's the first thing I really like about this series. And then them being in this other world in the realms where you're in that more fantasy land, there's magic and there's different creatures and there's so much to just imagine and explore. And I think that's why I like fantasy books so much and historical books, because you really have to, you know, get that imagery in your head And that's something I really like about these books. And that's why every time I pick it up and read it, even now, years later, and I've read it at least a couple times now, I still get that sense of escapism. Like I'm in a different place. And that came in really handy, honestly, during the pandemic when I definitely wanted to sometimes forget about what was going on right outside of my apartment. So yeah, definitely feel that sense of escapism with this book. That's awesome. I get what you mean, too. I think since the pandemic, I found that I've been reading a lot more fantasy, but also like a lot more YA, which usually isn't my cup of tea. But it's just, it's more rich, I think, for escapism than a lot of other books. So I get what you mean. I agree with that. I feel like a lot of books that are for older audiences, I feel like they tend to be more well, what's popular, at least, it's more contemporary. There's a lot of modern like, romance. I'm sure there are still some new fantasy books for older audiences. But I do feel like, I almost feel like some people kind of fall off of want, like being more interested in the more fantasy-based publications, at least from my perspective. That makes sense. This is something we've kind of talked about a little bit on the podcast before, because my co-host is very tuned in to the fiction community mm-hmm. and is also a really big fan of fantasy. But there isn't a lot of, there aren't a lot of books out there geared towards people our age who mm-hmm. are maybe a little bit like older than YA, but still like kind of have want some of those coming of age themes haven't like fully settled into adulthood, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I know. I know a few years ago I read Miss Peregrine. 
Yeah, I know. Peregrine School for Peculiar Children. And I actually bought it for a trip I was going on. I was going to my friend's wedding in Connecticut and I was taking the train. And I realized that I didn't bring a book to read with me. I didn't want to be on my phone the whole time I was on the train. So I actually went into one of the bookstores or the Hudson News stores at Penn Station and I just bought the book. And I felt kind of weird buying it because I was thinking, am I too old to read this? But I read it and I I loved it. I've actually been thinking about rereading that one. And I think it was really well written. And I mean, I forgot that it was, you know, a YA book. And <laughs> I forgot about maybe being too old to read it once I started reading it. And it's really well written. And it's, again, so different and unique. And you get that kind of fantasy escape again. But I definitely feel like that is something that is more reserved for young adult books. And the only fantasy series I can think of think that are more for adults would be like the Game of Thrones series, Lord of the Rings. (laughs) That's all I can think of off the top of my head. I guess that are probably also just as big. I'm sure there are other ones too. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure if my co-host were here, she could like name 10 because that's her her Mm -hmm. thing. But also I think to a certain extent, like sometimes the fact that it's geared towards younger audiences makes it a little bit more accessible because as much as I love fantasy in general, mm-hmm. it is harder. It's harder for me to step into a world where the characters aren't also stepping into it for the first time. And I think because okay. children's and young adult fiction tends to be so much about coming of age, it's easier mm-hmm. to like have that role of... Right this world is kind of like ours, but also look, there's this whole other magical element. Right. No, I definitely understand that. Definitely agree with that. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because Mm -hmm. this was, I I think I picked up these books at like 14, 15. And so I think that's about when I read them, maybe, maybe 16. (laughs) No, I get what you're saying too. But like, it it was that same sort of age. And so for Mm -hmm. me, I felt like I was dealing with a lot of the things that Gemma was dealing with, except, you know, obviously, there weren't like whole government structures that I needed to uh, create. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But like, revisiting them, I I think it was very nostalgic because I got to remember like all of these issues that these girls are dealing with in terms of sexism and responsibility in adulthood and having to deal with like grown up rules that seem unfair. And I wanted to know if you had any feelings like that too, because I know that you also revisited the series pretty recently, or if you did when you were younger. I definitely noticed those, you know, obviously you notice those tones in the book and of course with them being in the time period that they're in, I feel like those, you know, like the sexism is definitely magnified because back then it was, that's just how it was. It probably wasn't even considered sexism at the time. You know, girls and women just had a different place in society and different expectations. And something that I really like, something else I really like about this trilogy as a whole is how Gemma and her friends want to break free of them like it's really clear that like Gemma especially she when she has her little internal monologues when she's thinking about the teas that she goes to and the balls and the different events you can tell she has this kind of disdain for them Mm -hmm. (laughs) she doesn't like how the girls around her they only seem to care about gossiping they only care about like who's courting who and 
who's, you know, sticking with those expectations of the time. And I know that we're very far removed from that now, but I, I still feel like there are ways today where girls and women are, we still have those kind of expectations to be a certain way. And there is kind of a little bit of a parallel, at least to me, you know, thinking about, you know, like today, okay, women are still expected to, you know, be the the homemakers, to be mothers, and you still have some of these antiquated ideas. And I remember getting kind of angry reading, <laughs> even more recently reading this book and thinking, comparing it to now, I... I, I like to think that I would be like Gemma and her friends that I would want to break free <laughs> from that. Like I would look, I would think about it and be like, no, this is wrong. I should be able to study what I want in school. I should be able to pursue anything I want. And it's funny because I do think that we're still battling some of these old ideas today. I think we definitely are. And in my book, there's an interview with Libba Bray at the back. She's asked about the social justice aspect of this book, which Maggie and I, in the last two episodes, were kind of critical of because this book was written in the early 2000s. So mm-hmm. there are things like the word gypsy isn't, isn't you know, appropriate term to use anymore. Right. And also in the first book, there's like the way Felicity treats Ithal and even the way Gemma treats Kartik feels mm-hmm. like very fetishy. Like, mm-hmm. so... We've talked a little bit about that and for right. the past two books. But anyway, we also came to the conclusion that it was still like a pretty radical book for the time. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the question is, you tackle a lot of issues in this novel. Workers' rights, women's rights, race, class, etc. What is one thing you hope your readers take away from your novels? And the answer. Well, I hope everybody had a good time and felt emotionally engaged with the characters and moved by the story. That's first. And then beyond that, If people took away the idea that we are all part of this world and that it's our job to look out for one another, to question who benefits from the existing power structures and who suffers, and what are some ways, both small and large, that we might begin to shift things towards a more truly democratic way of life, then hey, that's great. So I think that's important to know that this was something she kind of was considering at the very least while writing this series. Oh, yeah, so I think there's supposed to be parallels. Mm-hmm. And, and I, too, also found a lot of parallels, especially to, like, the current situation that we're in right now mm-hmm. with the pandemic. <laughs> yes. Before we delve into that, though, I just wanted to give everyone a quick summary of the book. And I wrote it out, and it's kind of corny. So here is my summary. And Rachel can feel free to add anything after that she thinks is important for listeners to know. All right, so Gemma Doyle has defeated Cersei and restored balance to the realms, or so she thinks. Finding the realm's power to herself, she discovers that she's changed the rules of the realm and has changed herself. In this final book, Gemma aims to change the fate of her friends in her own life before establishing a new governing system for the realms. She struggles with the freedom her new power gives her and her own sanity as she explores the unpleasant darkness of the realms, her own world, and herself. Is there anything else, because this is such a big book, mm-hmm. that you feel like is really important to know in, in the summary? I actually think this covers pretty much all of it. She struggles with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, there's, you know, what goes on outside of the realms where they're, like, her and her friends are debating what they're, well, not debating, but they're going through what they need to to move forward with their lives. But I, I feel like that's obviously a big part of the book, but I feel like what's going on in the realms is really the, like, meat of this book. That's kind of what pulls me in. Well, I'm, I mean, of course, that, like, I'm more interested in that because it's, again, the fantasy element. And I believe that both the, the what happens in the realms and what happens in their lives outside of the realms are very important and, you know, highlight different issues. But I think your summary sums it up. I understand what you're saying. I think that there's a lot of parallels. They play off of each other, right? Like the right. girls go on to kind of abuse their power in the realms, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And I'd say Gemma especially abuses her power outside of the realms. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, a, yeah, it's a reaction. And I think we see this throughout the whole series. It's a reaction to what little power they have in the, in the real world. Yeah, I know there's one part of the book I remember where she actually says, it's probably multiple parts, but there's one part I remember she actually says, like, if only everybody could see here out in the real world what I could do in the realms, they would respect me more. Referencing the other girls at the school who, the more, like, catty, gossipy girls, she was thinking they would respect me more. Like, they wouldn't talk to me like this or try to talk down on me. You can tell she definitely... I feel like she's not drunk with power, because she doesn't just outwardly use it, but you can tell she wants to like just show people she wants to kind of have some kind of power in the real world. And I think that's in response to, you know, feeling helpless feeling like yeah. she's not in control of her life. I think they all like, Anne especially feel, you can tell she feels like she's not in control of her life at all. But Gemma, I think has that too. Like she doesn't want to, be this how am I trying to say this she doesn't want to do what society expects of her (laughs) and at the end she doesn't I mean none of the Mm -hmm. girls they all end up breaking free Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's something I really like about this book they all get the endings that they want and I think they deserve so I like that a lot except for poor Pip but that's okay (laughs) that was That was decided in the first book, unfortunately. One of the things Maggie and I have started to do, because the aim of this podcast is to read literature through a feminist lens. And Mm -hmm. we discovered that Maggie and I both took a lot of literature classes. Mm -hmm. We discovered that we needed to start giving people more context for the way that the way we were reading literature and then also to like narrow it down. So I have three um, main ways that I think I'd like to look at this book and the first is actually let's start a little bit with let's start with social dominance theory because I think that some of the stuff that you just were talking about Mm -hmm. um really plays into this and I think that this is a big theme throughout the book and both the realms and also outside of the realms because we're living in Victorian England Mm -hmm. so the idea of social dominance theory is essentially and I'm taking this mostly from Wikipedia. I did have a scholarly source, but now I can't get back into it. So that's okay. Wikipedia is pretty, pretty accurate. The main idea behind social dominance theory is that we as a society 
have a number of like rules and myths and cultural cues that we use to create hierarchy. Mm. And the words that Wikipedia uses is social dominance theory holds that decisions and behaviors of individuals and groups can be better understood by examining the quote myths that guide and motivate them. And so there's this idea called legitimizing myths. And they are consensually held values, attitudes, beliefs, stereotypes, conspiracy theories, cultural ideologies that essentially say that like privilege is the norm, right? Having money, being white, being straight, having a place of power in society is supposed Mm -hmm. to be the norm, even though it's not. The majority of people don't have a lot of money or or really a lot of power. And Mm -hmm. as we know, power is intersectional, right? Like there are different ways in which we all have power Mm -hmm. and it's not just like a sliding scale, Right. So I think that this idea of social dominance theory in this book plays out in terms of how we see different characters interact, because even though this book was written in the early 2000s, we have like a semi-diverse cast of characters. We have people of different social classes, people with different ability in terms of like their ability to see or, or, or do things mm-hmm. and we have people of different sexualities. And we do have... We really only have Karchik and the Romani people who represent, I guess, different ethnicities. Right. Yeah. But I think that and, and then we also have sexism, which is the big thing that the, our main characters are fighting against, in addition to class and mm-hmm. power. Do you have any thoughts on that about like how this idea of social domination plays out in this book? Well, I think the way you see the different you know you see the characters interacting with each other um definitely shows it uh just using Anne as as an example she's at spence on a scholarship and she's only there to be a governess i believe Mm -hmm. yep um she's not there to be become a sophisticated lady of high society like the rest of the girls are who whose families have a lot of money she's there to learn how to serve her like wealthier family members and the way she's treated you definitely see that she's kind of treated like an outsider really I think if Gemma wasn't there I don't think she would really be friends with the girls at the school which is really sad Um, and that's something that you know bothered me (laughs) you know just reading it through my lens you know like my with my experience and the way I see the world that upset me like and and you you think like that shouldn't matter why does it matter that she's not like wealthy or she's not like the other girls and then on top of them looking down on her because of that her social standing it's her looks too you know they describe her in the book as being you know not as like physically a pretty, you know, not as conventionally pretty as the other girls. She gets looked down on for that reason, too. And then with the, yeah, with Kardik and the Romani, they're, they're looked down on. I know just in this book, specifically when the team of men are reconstructing the, the East Wing of Spence, you can tell their their boss, Mr. Miller, he, like, hates the... The, the gypsies, they call them in the book. He hates them being there and they ask if they can help. And he looks down on them and he tells 
tells the girls that they need to stay away from them. And, and even looking at the realms, when you go into the realms, you see the same thing happening among the different creatures. There's a kind of class system there. Yeah, with the untouchables and also like the order itself. It feels like with the order in the Rakashana, especially in this book, because we discover that Simon Middleton, I think that's his last name, or Simon Denby, Simon Denby's dad, Lord Denby, who's like this really powerful social phenomenon mm-hmm. and rich guy. So he's a part of the Rakshana. And so it's just like, oh, the way the order in the Rakshana run the realms and like run the rules of magic feels like it's a very British, British Victorian colonialistic way to run it. Mm -hmm. And that ends up linking into the realms, but then the realms also has their own thing, which is similar to ours where just like brute force and power uh, create hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I definitely uh, noticed that in the books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot about power here that is like, there's a lot to dig into. The second theory that I wanted to look at was this theory that comes from Carl Jung called the shadow, your shadow self, right? And so this comes from an idea that we have a subconscious and in our subconscious exists a darker version of ourself that has, you know, bad qualities. And we were talking a little bit earlier about the idea of Gemma becoming like power drunk, but maybe not quite. Although I would argue there are some scenes in the book having just like just finished reading it today where mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is too much. <laughs> I mean, you need to calm down. That is mm-hmm. not consent. <laughs> yeah, she, she has her moments, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the only reason she does hold back sometimes is because she's in the real world. And obviously she can't create all this chaos, like showing the girls and the teachers that spend like what she can do. And I feel like if it weren't for that, she'd probably just let loose and show everybody what she could do. I feel like the only thing restraining her was the, the fact that, you know, she couldn't do it. Yeah. But she was restricted. Mm hmm. Okay, that's an interesting idea that I want to get to in a second. So let's go to the shadow self. So the idea of the shadow self is that like you have this meanness. And there was something that was said on another podcast that I listened to called Missing Witches. And the quote is something along the lines of, we all tend to think of ourselves as good people. And when people think of themselves as good people, they are not able to recognize that they're doing bad things, which I think is really pertinent when we're talking about things like social domination theory, Mm -hmm. right? Like I recently discovered that a lot of the ways that I thought about reading, for example, was kind of ableist. Like I kind of looked down on audiobooks maybe a year ago, which has no scientific basis, but like the idea of being a good reader, like real reading for me had a lot of ableist roots. So there are a lot of like different biases and ways that we uphold social domination theory or not theory but just like social domination and hierarchy in general Mm -hmm. because we're unable to recognize that we are capable of being biased and being bad right (laughs) and I think that that is very pertinent in this book because there is an instance where Gemma ends up meeting with the head of the order who has been corrupted Mm -hmm. and she talks to her about how the head of the order who is Eugene Spence 
Mm -hmm. how Eugene Spence was able to be taken in by the tree of life and able to become this sort of evil force because she refused to acknowledge the fact that she could do bad things or that she could be wrong or that the order could be wrong. Mm -hmm. So another big thing that supports shadow theory throughout this book is that Cersei tells Gemma before she goes into the Winterlands that she has to search herself. Because mm. uh, the Winterlands is like a darker sort of place, and it's it's right. described as dark, but having like a stark beauty. Yeah. Mm. In order to get into the Winterlands, you have to be able to name your greatest desire and greatest fear, which I also right. think relates to the shadow self. Mm-hmm. I think so too. Do you have any other instances you want to mention? Uh, well, something I thought about um, the whole not being able to acknowledge you're doing bad things when you think you're a good person. I think that can kind of relate to when Gemma was meeting with Cersei alone. Like she would always go to the temple and like talk to her and she would think like she felt guilty. She wasn't telling Anne and Felicity what she was doing, but I think she convinced herself that it was okay because she's like, well, I'm doing this to figure out how to best divvy up the magic with everybody in the realms. Like I'm doing this for, a good cause. And I think she kind of like blinded herself to why what she was doing was wrong or why it wasn't really the best option because she convinced herself that it was for like the greater good, even though it, at the end of the day, it probably wasn't a great idea and not really the best thing to do. And then she was, you know, lying to her friends about it and they're all supposed to be trusting each other. And I was just thinking about that when you mentioned it. No, I agree. I think, that's one of the reasons why this book for me as a teen like was so powerful it's because like Gemma is an imperfect character and I don't think Mm -hmm. I realized it quite as much as a teenager but like going back and reading it I guess like now I'm I'm able to be like oh Gemma you shouldn't have done that and we do to be fair we do see character growth like you were talking a little bit earlier about Anne and the treatment of Anne and how like Gemma is her only friend at least in the beginning Mm-hmm. But throughout the other two books, there are instances in which, like, Gemma really looks down on Anne, and Gemma is constantly calling Anne ugly. And it's not until this book that, like, Gemma states point blank that Anne is beautiful, just not like you have to get to know her first. Right, right. Yeah. I definitely noticed that. Yeah, so there's there's character growth there, but like, definitely, Gemma is also susceptible. <laughs> We also see it with Kartik, too, because in the last book, there's an instance where Gemma and Kartik, you know, kind of realize, come to realize that they have feelings for each other. And Gemma says, like, she realizes for herself that, like, she doesn't actually think she can be with Kartik because he's Indian, Mm -hmm. which living in Victorian England is a real problem and probably very dangerous for the both of them, but especially Mm -hmm. for Kartik. Right. But in this book, I felt like she had stopped caring as much, mm-hmm. was more genuinely gun ho like, oh, this is the person I love. Right. Yeah. Along the lines of shadow theory, I found this really great thesis called The Snake, the Mistress, and the Shadow, Coming to Terms with the Shadow Aspects of the Feminine. And it's essentially a thesis describing a collection of art and photos But it makes a really cool parallel between the shadow self and the idea of the whore versus virgin dichotomy, which essentially states that like woman cannot be viewed 
as being anything other than like whores, which are demonized mm-hmm. or saintly virgins, but both are desired by men and objectified. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really relevant to this book because I think that there's a lot dealt here in terms of like sexuality. And I think that mm-hmm. we see the different girls both play those dichotomies out and try them on. Mm-hmm. But like, I think Felicity probably the most is most comfortable identifying with like the whore and I bodying that. Whereas like Anne very much, although maybe not because she's not beautiful, but kind of embodies the idea of the virgin or the prude. And Gemma seems the swing between the both of them. I hadn't, well, you know, thought about it in that way before, but I definitely, you know, thinking about it now, it, it makes a lot of sense. One of the other cool parallels that I liked from this dissertation talked about how the Victorian era specifically played with this dichotomy in terms of horror. And mm-hmm. even though this is a modern text, as in like it was, you know, written in the early 2000s, right. the modern ish, I think that that was something maybe Bray tried to play with a little bit because the Victorian era is obsessed with ghost stories and like it is a kind of scary book. It is so obsessed with sexuality, but I I feel like it's almost subversive by giving these girls in the Victorian era a chance to own their own sexuality and like have this great magnificent power. Right. Because this era itself is, is placing girls. There's a point in the book where Tom tells Gemma point blank that a woman's worth is her reputation. Mm-hmm. I think so that like, part made me mad when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> I know Tom as a character really made me mad. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't too crazy about him, but I mean, I understand he was written in the context of you know, a Victorian era man. That's a norm from that era, I'm sure. So it makes sense, but it still upsets me. Yeah. <laughs> I can definitely see why. Mm-hmm. Tom's a frustrating character. He's kind of a dick. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> One of the other really cool things that this this dissertation mentioned, and, and then I'll move on, I promise, is on page 17 of it. Let me just open it up. It talked about fantasy and fantasy and illusion. And here's what it has to say. Horror and sci-fi in general have played a role in outlying the unconscious fears of society, supplying a stage in which we can digest the troubles which plague the unconscious. It can play the role of a mediator or a metaphor, masking a deeper, more disturbing truth. Fantasy and art can also serve as a mask, as a barrier, which can shield us from repressed experiences which we are afraid to confront in ourselves or in our society. I think that's a really cool idea, especially because we were talking about escapism earlier, but also like dealing with our shadow selves and our our troubles and mm-hmm. parallels that we might find in the real world through a fictional text that like takes place even in just a different era. Like it, it allows us to confront these things more directly because mm-hmm. it's not these different barriers make it like safer for us, I feel. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think it makes sense. It feels more abstract in a way. Like it's not maybe not as I don't want to say real but maybe like yeah like it doesn't feel as real so it feels less scary yeah yeah 
it feels safer. So it's like, yeah, it's like being able to confront this darkness within a safe space. Mm-hmm. Whereas like in the real world, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we created a whole separate world. And that's where we're going to deal. That's where we're going to tackle problems like hierarchy or less so in this book, but a little bit like tackle problems with racism or Mm -hmm. sexism in a way that might not feel as traumatic. Right. So in the context of this book, could that kind of be like of realms like to Gemma and to Felicity and Anne? Well, Gemma mainly, she's the one is mainly dealing with the problems in the realms, but I feel like she has she has more power in the realms to create the hierarchies, obviously, than she does in like her own life. You know, in the like in the real world. Yeah, I feel like that could be like the realms for them. Like that's in a way they're safe space or maybe not a safe space as much as it's a world where they just can like they're just able to deal with that like they have more power so they they have more of the ability to control what they're like what they're doing in the realms and like Gemma again especially she has like all the magic so she has that power where she can help influence what's going on I think we don't necessarily see Anne and Felicity in this book confront like their shadow selves, but I think right. in- I was just thinking the I forgot about the whole confronting your shadow self. Yeah, in the round when like when they go into the Winterlands, they have to they they essentially have to do that just to get into the Winterlands. They have to say their desire, they have to say their fear, and they can't be like lying or shy about it. They have to just confront it. And yeah, I definitely think Gemma, like she does that more for sure. And I think with her having all like the, all the magic and she, she I think she does kind of have that struggle. Like, do I use this for good or is it okay to like, not, not use it for bad. She never wants to use it for bad, but you kind of see like she wants to use it like against people that she doesn't like. <laughs> Yeah. And I feel like there is that confrontation. She has to think, you know, again, like thinking about the real world. Okay. She, she can't use it because she's in the real world. But if she didn't have that restriction, would she just use it and maybe not use it in such a great way? I think there is still that kind of struggle going on with what she does with the magic. And yeah, no, I I agree. I think in terms of the way that like Gemma herself, uh ends up doing that just to like be explicit about it i think like for me um when she was she there were a few instances there was an instance which in which she like kept on enchanting her um her chaperone and making her go get lemonade and that was the first time where i was like oh that's a little uncomfortable right. and then there yeah yeah and then there's like she literally enchants her entire family to like match more what she wants her family to be mm-hmm. which also felt that. Yep. yeah that also felt very uncomfortable and then for me it was like super uncomfortable I guess it like wasn't as bad considering the fact that Simon in the in the last book I don't know if you remember this but in the last book uh Simon like 
there's a very rapey scene between Simon and Gemma in which Simon like goes to he gets her drunk. That's in the second book, right? Yeah. Yes, I remember that in the second book. Yeah. But this time Gemma kind of gets her revenge because she enchants Simon to dance inappropriately with her. And that for me was like, oh, no, no. Gemma. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that goes back to that, um, what we were talking about earlier, that idea that you don't know, like, you don't see what you're doing as bad because you're a good person. Like, she probably thought that, you know, she, with her family, for instance, she just wanted to see her family, you know, happy and everyone just in a good mood in a good place so maybe she didn't see that as bad like oh i'm using my magic but it's for a good reason we're all going to be happy Mm -hmm. yeah it kind of reminded me of that that we were talking about earlier yeah i think she figures it out by the end Mm -hmm. but in terms of like the other girls and in terms of their shadow self because we were talking a little bit about that too i think they also both confronted their shadow self kind of in the Mm -hmm. second book as well second right Felicity had a moment. I mean, we found out we find out in the second book that Felicity is a survivor of sexual assault from her father. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment in the realms in which the poppy warriors really delve into that fear of hers mm-hmm. in a really uncomfortable way. But Felicity is able to find her strength through it. And for Anne, I think it's when she's able to have her own agency, because there is a moment in which she is captured by the mer people and they try to steal her skin and she's like playing this damsel in distress role because Anne is kind of the the least active character right she's a little bit more passive than the others or at least than Gemma and Felicity and then she ends up saving herself by singing and I think like I think that for them that is kind of their shadow their shadow moments in which they're confronting that and I think that's why when all when everyone tries to get into the winterlands for the first time Anne and felicity are able to simply state their desires like it might be a little bit hard for them but they know their fears and desires already and mm-hmm. Gemma has a lot more trouble with it because she right. has yet to really confront her her shadow self was there anything you wanted to add to that no pressure yeah the only thing i'm thinking is that was probably done deliberately you know like to have Gemma kind of be the last one out of the series just across these whole books to be forced to do that. I feel like the first book was all about learning about her magic and learning about the realms and the power she has. And then the second book was like an exploration of it. So you had like the discovery, you had the exploration, and then now it's like the conclusion, like the wrap up, like she really learns about mastering the powers, like mastering the magic. And I think she has to confront that shadow side of herself in order to truly master it, to understand the kind of rights from wrongs, like when it's truly okay to use magic and when it's not good. And I think she, you know, she struggled, like we mentioned earlier, she struggles with that throughout the book. And I think by the end of it, she, she does have that understanding of, okay, I have to be, she had this sense of being responsible, but then she really comes around and she really gains that stronger sense of responsibility with it, I think. I agree. I think she definitely does. I I recently read another series by Libba Bray that's a little bit more recent 
called the Diviner series that I actually think you would really like, by the way. And one of the things I struggled with was determining whether or not that series, that series main ideologies, because it, it, it deals with social justice even more directly. And it's written in a more recent time period. So like, the parallels are really quite visible. <laughs> <You're from the laughs> but like, I struggled a lot with whether or not I felt like the book advocated for solutions that would actually work in the real world. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a fantasy novel in terms of like dealing with those social justice issues. And surprisingly, at the end of this book, I do kind of feel like even though this book has other issues in terms of like like more direct issues in terms of representation, and it depicts a little last episode, Maggie and I talked a little bit about how we felt like the pedophilia depicted in the second book was a little bit exploitative. Yeah. So like, even though this book has problems, I feel like the way it ended felt more certain to me like a better like like a like a good solution for dealing with hierarchy which leads me to the third theory that I wanted to discuss with this book which is uh anarchism which I've talked about on the podcast before because I recently this year through the pandemic discovered that I am a philosophical anarchist in terms of my ideology yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I feel like Anarchism is a big, even if Libba Bray herself doesn't know that, big theme throughout this book because Gemma is constantly pushing up against these very rigid rules. Mm-hmm. And I have a passage that I think kind of embodies this on page 334. Okay, so McLeathy is trying to, M- McLeathy has taken all the girls out, Miss McLeathy, who is a member of the order, and she's taking all the girls out to go paint things. And she's kind of doing, she's pulling a Miss Moore in that she's like talking to Gemma, even though she's also talking to the rest of the girls while they do art class. And Mm. she has a quote where she says, What we can see is proof, proof that man can conquer nature, that chaos can be turned back. You see the evidence of the importance of order, of law, for conquer chaos we must. And if we see it in ourselves, we must root it out and replace it with steadfast discipline. Which is supposed to sort of, I think, embody the order's idea of how the realms should be run. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Through rules and restrictions, but also embodies the sort of Victorian ideal for rules and, and hierarchy and yeah stations different people's stations (laughs) Mm -hmm. and there's this like throughout this book there's a lot of pushback that Gemma ends up having with Gemma really pushes up against the idea of rules and McLeafy essentially ends up accusing her of creating chaos and I think that when we think of anarchism our general default is to like the way the way the word has been treated and the way what the word means in layman's terms in general society tends to be chaos, even though that doesn't necessarily embody the philosophy at all, because that's what we associate not having hierarchy with. We, we associate if there is no hierarchy, which in hierarchy means that we have to have set power structures, right. then, then it just defaults into chaos. And Gemma is really like, well, why? Why does it have to be like that? Why can't right. we just trust people and give people power? Like, yeah, why does their station have to matter so much? 
Mm-hmm. I agree with her questioning that. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that's that's kind of what's happening in the the realms among the different groups of people, like the forest people and the untouchables and all the other groups. Everybody, you know, has a place that's been, I mean, and things are chaotic because the magic's been disrupted. So it's like, it's like the people, the people of the realms, they're like, kind of like, there is that hierarchy system that's just kind of there, you know, like you have the untouchables there at the, you know, would be the bottom. And then you have the, the other main group I can think of are the forest people. I'm not really sure where they sit exactly in the hierarchy, but you can tell they think they're higher than the untouchables. Yeah. And when they are talking to Gemma about, you know, divvying up the magic, I think they want more than the untouchables. Like they don't think that the untouchables deserve as much as they do. And they're upholding this idea that they are better groups of people instead of everyone just being more equal. Yeah. And it, it's like a, it's like a power struggle. It, it, I think it does parallel what's going on in the real world for Gemma and her friends in Victorian era England. There's that hierarchy, of course, that, you know, you know, is there just because of the era and what, you know, you know, historically, but they just show it in the book too, the way that different people are treated. And I feel like you definitely see the parallels between that. And you see Gemma's, I think, confusion with why it has to be that way in both worlds. Like she doesn't understand why in her real life, there's this power struggle and there's this way that you're expected to act, you know, like what her brother said, you're, you know, especially for women, it's your reputation. But I feel like overall, it's everyone's reputation that determines, helps to determine where you are in life. And then in the realms, you see that maybe not so much based on reputation, but they have that hierarchy struggle too. And then, you know, again, Gemma's just questioning all of it. Like, why does it have to be so rigid? Why can't there be more flexibility? No, I agree. I agree. And I actually think, So I think that the solution that she ends up coming up with where she gives the power back to the land Mm -hmm. is actually an inherently anarchist one. And I have a definition here of anarchism that I stole from Wikipedia. So (laughs) verbatim, here we go. Anarchism is a political philosophy and movement that is skeptical of authority and rejects all involuntary coercive forms of hierarchy. Anarchism calls for the abolition of state, which holds which it holds to be undesirable, unnecessary, and harmful. And also, if, if we if you go into other definitions of anarchism for this episode, and I'll link in the show notes, there is a definition that I took from the platostanford.edu philosophy encyclopedia um, that talks about anarchism as well. And so, like, different philosophical anarchists don't necessarily always call for complete abolition of state it might be something smaller or there might it might be like state in its most stripped down form which i think you kind of see at the end of the book in terms of how the realms is governed because now everyone has access to magic because Mm -hmm. the land is itself is magical but they also have like 
some sort of governance in that they have different leaders of the various uh, and cohorts mm -hmm. yep. and, and they all play different roles. But it's not necessarily like anyone is greater or less great right. than anyone else. Everybody has a role and it's like even. And I think that's how society should be. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Her solution was essentially anarchists like she didn't give the power to any group of people she gave it to the land and everybody can access that instead of upholding this this idea you know this hierarchy system that you know people are better than others because I definitely think that the magic was used in a way to construct that hierarchy like before I think it was in the first book when Gemma destroyed the crystals that had the magic. Mm -hmm. I haven't read the first book for a long time, but <laughs> I remember that at the end. And then the magic was just everywhere, but then they, she contained it in herself. But I think the order had all of the magic for a while. So they were the highest because of having all the magic. And that's, you know, obviously seen as being very valuable. And then, once it was freed and then contained in Gemma, then everybody wanted it because they saw it as a way to have power, to have a higher standing. And I like that she just gave it back to the land instead of, you know, one group having it or, you know, certain groups having like more than others because that would just keep up that idea that, you know, certain groups are better than others. And I, I do think that's anarchist. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I think we also see like appropriate pushback from that because at the mm -hmm. end, Lord Denby is talking to Gemma and he's mm -hmm. like, you know, that's a lot of power that you have. If you ever need help governing it from a man. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what did you end up doing? She's like, I gave it back to the land. And he's mm -hmm. like, are you sure that's wise? And she's like, well, we just have to trust people. And I think that kind of ties back into the shadow self thing. Like we see a lot mm -hmm. of redemption for almost all of our characters. Maybe not Pip. I can't actually remember if there's any redemption for uh, her. I don't think so. From what I remember... No. No? Poor no, She kind of had her... I do feel like she was kind of a lost cause. Honestly. And I, also, I also feel like throughout most of this book, I would have thought Cersei was also a lost cause because Cersei killed, right? And there's like no coming back from killing. But Gemma forgives her and allows her to right. like have a space in the Order. In the Order's period. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I like this idea of radical forgiveness and this idea that like we can, it, even though we make choices and like that is on us and we can't erase the harm that we've done, there's still like a path forward. I think that's a really healing idea for society. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think the reason I don't, I don't really see Pippa as having a very strong redeeming moment is because she just wanted power. Like she had that group of girls that she was kind of overseeing, but she kind of exalted herself over them. Mm -hmm. And they like looked up to her, like they like worshiped her, but I think she kind of let that go to her head. And I, I do feel like she was 
I feel like she was manipulative and very like try to be like a sweet talker like oh Gemma don't you want to help me out like that kind of idea and I feel like by the end of the book when she met her demise I just I don't really think she redeemed herself very well or at all but that's that's how I feel I feel like she just wanted power and then she that was just kind of her last hurrah like wanting all this power and then that was the end of her in the realms yeah. Do you think if do you think if she had like because I think there's a moment in which Felicity says like Felicity sacrifices herself and she's like Pip I will eat the berries and just stay with you if you like stop trying mm-hmm. to hurt people and stop trying to sacrifice mm-hmm. them. Right. Do you think if she had like even just listened to that she may have been redeemable because I think the reason that Miss Moore is redeemable in this book or like the reason Gemma allows her is because Miss Moore kind of loves Gemma and that's not her ultimate goal but like mm-hmm. like that's not her driving force but she's still concerned with protecting Gemma. Mm-hmm. Maybe there would have been a little bit of a redeeming moment if she had kind of gotten out of that I need power I need to be worshipped and exalted space maybe it would have been but then if Felicity had you know sacrificed herself I feel like like at what cost would she have stopped like I guess like she would like her friend would be there you know stuck with her and probably you know possibly would have the same fate like that same kind of corruption so I don't I don't I don't, I don't think, think so. so. <laughs> That's gonna be fair. honest. I don't think so. <laughs> That's fair. I, I guess too. It probably isn't like you could argue that that would because that's that's still selfish because she'd still be like condemning being right. the same fate. That it's not right. like true love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. That's that's why I don't think it would be very like redeeming for her because she would be asking this huge not even just a favor, just this, like, she would be asking her friend to, you know, sacrifice her life, you know, outside to be there forever, and she'd probably end up corrupted in the same way. Do you have any other thoughts on the book as a whole? I think that's everything I wanted to talk about, but is there anything that, like, you really feel like is worth talking about and needs to be? Yeah, I think we, I think we covered all of, most of, maybe not every single one but I think we covered a lot of the big themes from the book I agree I agree I think I'm good too all (laughs) right so let's move on do you think this was a feminist book for you and your personal definition of feminism which you can elaborate on if you want to no I I mean I do and I think it is because the main characters challenge so many norms from you know the time that they were living in and I think that's a really big deal because, you know, especially back then, I mean, I feel like even today, but especially back then, your reputation, you know, how how much you follow different societal norms, that really <clears throat> determined your place in society. And especially for women, because women didn't really have really any... I don't want to say any, but they didn't have much worth outside of, you know, if they were marriage material, would they make a good wife? Would they be a good mother? And 
you definitely see Gemma and her friends challenging that. And they're surrounded by people who don't. Like all of the other girls at Spence, you know, you're led to believe that they they just fit that mold of what they're supposed to be. They're at Spence to become good wives and good like women of high standing and they don't really seem to question it. They they go to their classes, they learn the etiquette, they talk about what's going on in society and they seem totally fine with their life kind of just being almost like being presented to them. Like this is what you're going to have. If you do everything right, this is what you're going to have. You're going to have a husband, you're going to have the family, you're going to have the money and the standing and that's what you should strive for. And it's, they don't really have other ambitions outside of that. But then with Gemma and Anne Felicity, you know, they wanted to break away from that. And by the end of the book, they do luckily. Yeah. They all end up empowered in their various ways. Just through this whole book, they really do challenge those norms and they not just challenge them, but they overcome them and they end up with the lives that they actually want instead of just, surrendering to what's going on around them and all these people around them. And I do think that's a big part of feminism, you know, um, breaking free of those traditions. I mean, part of it is, I mean, you know, choosing your life the way you want it. There's, I'm not saying the other girls and, you know, young women in the book were wrong because they followed those norms because I think part of feminism is, respecting that women can choose what they want, even if it's not, you know, what we might think of as being feminist, like, oh, you shouldn't want to be just a wife. You shouldn't want to be just a mother. But I think if that's what a woman chooses, then that's like respecting that as feminist, as part of feminism. So I'm not saying that the other girls were wrong, but um, I do, you know, they probably genuinely wanted that, you know, assume just, if thinking of these were real people, that's probably what they genuinely wanted. And they're probably happy seeking those lives. But then you have these three characters who they wanted to break away from that. And they didn't just want to, they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good example of like feminism. You know, you're living your life the way you want to. You're not living it according to certain rules that are being uh, forced on you. You're doing what you want. And to me, that's women doing what they want is feminism. I agree. That's beautiful. Beautifully said. Yeah, I agree with you a lot. Especially you were just talking about like the other girls and their choice. And there's uh, an important scene in this book where all of the Spence girls uh, find out that magic is real and like their privileged little lives are really broken because this incredible thing is happening and they're scared for the first time. And Gemma goes through, Mrs. Nightwing asks Gemma to like erase everyone's memory. Mm-hmm. And she does, but she leaves them with doubt, which I think is, even though doubt can be disempowering, is also really important, right? Because it forces us to be critical of the world around us. Right. And to question structures and like question what we really want. I think that also adds to the feminist element, because even if the girls do just kind of choose to do whatever they want, like now at least they're thinking about it. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's, it's even said in there that like, maybe they'll go ahead and like make something of that and start questioning these rules and questioning the ways that they treat people. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that. That was added in there. Me too. Me too. 
But yeah, I agree that it is also a feminist book because everyone ends up, I mean, like our, our three main characters at the very least end up like going beyond the restrictions of their society in ways mm-hmm. that they thought were impossible before. Right. Yeah. And we have, uh, like, I don't know if it fully achieves like equitableness, but like there's a start and people are trying and within the realms, at least like Gemma did make real change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I feel like just the fact that this takes place in Victorian era England, when, you know, there was that expectation, you know, you weren't supposed, if you're a woman, you weren't supposed to do what you wanted unless it was being a wife. So I feel like just looking at it from that lens is definitely very feminist. Yeah. Very feminist. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I think you're right. The other thing that we like to, to ask each other is like, on the show, Maggie and I usually com- uh, create personal homework for ourselves. So okay. I can go first to show you how it's done, even though I haven't thought about what my homework will be. But like, I think for me, my homework is going to be, I, I hope this, I hope I don't steal yours, but you can always have the same as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's going to be like confronting my shadow self more in, in a safe space. Cause sometimes I think I do, and then I get caught and then I just feel guilty you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have said right. that in this tone, or I committed a microaggression, now I don't know where to move forward, things like that. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not helpful. So if I confront it in a safe space, I can really unpack it and then create like a real action plan to move forward. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's actually something I feel like I've been doing since like last year. Yeah? And I was going through some not so easy things and I mean I feel like all of this kind of negativity just kind of came up and uh, I know this is really vague right exactly what I was dealing with but I feel like that's something I've been exploring and you know thinking about for the past year but it's something that I would like to delve further into really you know take the time to explore and especially with all that we like talked about right now see if I can just apply apply it to my life my situation yeah yeah. (laughs) I think everybody I think it's something everybody uh, needs to do and it's I mean it's uncomfortable but it it needs to be done Mm -hmm. it's okay to doubt yourself (laughs) try to do it in a safe way so you don't end up stuck Right, right. I think I just want to read the book again and just think about it through this new, like, context. Like, all that we talked about, I'm probably going to read this book again. (laughs) Wow! I hope you hit me up when you do. (laughs) Are you reading anything right now? I was rereading Alice in Wonderland. I need to find new books to read. Like, I don't want to keep reading the same things. And I want, because, you know, like I mentioned, I really like the fantasy books so that is something that I would like to explore more I know I I did a um, like a little book sorority and we read a book where the crawdads sing I've heard good things about that yeah so we did a little book club discussion so that's you know one of my more recent reads I'm reading nothing right now because I just I just finished this in like Mm -hmm. uh four days and it was a really long book I think Maggie and I were talking about it and we were like, we should have made this into two episodes. This is an 800 page book. (laughs) 
Yes. I always forget how long it is. And I look at it, I'm like, this book is 800 pages. And I'm just... Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Yes, I'm not reading anything right now. But soon I will be reading the next book that we're reading for the podcast, which is called... Not Your Sidekick by C.B. Lee, I believe. Is there anywhere people can go to follow you or are you completely closed off to uh, the public right now? Oh, no, I have Instagram and I have Twitter. I just want to make sure I get the spelling of my username right because I feel like my name is like really common. Let me just. Okay, so for Instagram, it's Rachie. R-A-C-H-I underscore Marie, M-A-R-I-E 91. And I think it's the same for Twitter. I'm not very creative with names. I know some people come up with these fun names. Yeah, it's the same for Twitter too. Wonderful. Listeners, you got that and we'll write that in our show notes as well. Um, okay, so that that is it for for. Now, next week, you can join me back with Maggie, and we will be talking about our last bite-sized bits for 2010. All right. I hope everyone has a good and happy uh, New Year's Eve. It's close to when this is coming out. So, (laughs) happy New Year. All right. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.